it's kind of amazing sometimes when people are allowed snores that you think they can sleep through that noise, right? It's so loud, but it tells you their brain has kind of like turned off the normal ability to kind of wake up to sounds in the protective manner that we should. Hey guys, I'm Ashley Don Rivard and you are now into the dawn a provocative podcast that looks at all things taboo, such as suicide, grief, sex, addictions, and more. Each week, I talk with experts who successfully investigate their areas of interest. And if you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe. Dr. Meredith Broderick is a triple board certified sleep physician and founder of Sound Sleep Guru, a telehealth sleep clinic serving Washington, California, and Alaska. She attended medical school at The Ohio State University, completed a neurology residency at Case Western Reserve University, and a sleep medicine and behavioral sleep medicine fellowship at Stanford Medical Center. She is board certified in neurology, sleep medicine, and behavioral sleep medicine, and is one of the only physicians in the country to hold this combination of board certifications. Dr. Broderick practices the full scope of sleep medicine, treating conditions such as insomnia, narcolepsy, circadian rhythm sleep-wake disorders, restless leg syndrome, and sleep-disordered breathing, including all forms of sleep apnea. This episode is so important to me because I have struggled probably my whole life with sleeping issues, and then the last few years have... I've never been diagnosed. I would diagnose myself as like an insomniac. So I really want to dive into all of this. And with your expertise, what would you consider a medical grade sleep disorder? So we have very specific criteria for each of the different sleep disorders and there are over a hundred sleep disorders and it really depends. But I think what you're asking is, you know, when would it require medical attention or when should someone come to see a doctor? And I think, you know, generally most of the sleep disorders, we say if it's impairing your daytime functioning. So you're just not able to get what you want out of life. So you might be having difficulty with your job. You might be having difficulty with relationships. You might not be doing the things you ordinarily would be doing. So maybe you're skipping out on, you know, hobbies and things like that. So I think, you know, that's when we really start to worry that this is a problem. What are the common sleep disorders then? Because if there's a hundred, what is like the narrow it down? What do you see most like a handful of people for? Yeah, I mean, I think probably um, insomnia, chronic insomnia. And, you know, we have specific things like, for example, it has to be more than three months going on for more than three months. You know, I think, you know, the reason for that is because sometimes people just go through stressful times and it's quote normal, you know, to sort of have difficult difficulty sleeping. But if someone has it chronically, meaning it's been going on for three months, then then we call it, you know, a medical uh, sleep disorder. Um, obstructive sleep apnea is also very common. There's no time duration for that, but we do have certain diagnostic criteria people have to meet in sleep testing, or they have to have some type of daytime impairment, for example, daytime sleepiness or, you know, other health conditions to, for us to diagnose that restless legs is another very common, uh, sleep disorder. 
Um, there's narcolepsy or what we call the primary hypersomnia. So these are um, disorders where there's usually daytime sleepiness. Um, and then some other common ones are what we call circadian rhythm disorders where people have, you know, night owl or early morning. They have these kind of innate rhythms that are in, you know, they're in conflict with kind of the culturally normal day. And then they have trouble sleeping because of that. Those are probably the most common ones that I see in the sleep clinic. What is restless leg syndrome? Restless leg syndrome is, it's a condition where there's a discomfort or urge to move the legs. Um, and it oftentimes prevents a person from being able to get comfortable and be able to fall asleep. So it can be associated with insomnia. Um, it can be hereditary. Um, it's also related to some metabolic states like iron deficiency or anemia or kidney disease. So um, it can manifest in different ways. Women, it's very common for women to get um, uh, restless legs during pregnancy just because, you know, our iron metabolism changes during that time. Hmm. And sleep apnea, I have heard when I hear this term, I hear it more in men. Is that safe to say or no? Yeah, that's true. Men have a, a higher risk of developing obstructive sleep apnea. For women, our risk is a little lower. We think they're you know, our hormones are somewhat protective. We also have less muscular necks and we have smaller necks. We have, we're, we tend to be shorter in stature. So there are some physical characteristics that make us less likely to have sleep apnea. But at menopause, when women have gone through menopause and are at the menopausal stage of life, our risk is equal to men. So until that stage of life, we have a lower risk. Interesting. And the sleep apnea, is that in direct correlation also with snoring? If you have sleep apnea, do you snore? Most of the time, yes. You don't have to snore. When people get to the very most severe stages of sleep apnea, they don't snore at all. They just, Their airway just closes, so there is no sound. Um, and there are some people that they snore and they're not aware of it and their partner's not even aware of it because they're sleeping when it's happening. So, you know, snoring is one thing and then there's awareness of snoring, right? Like a lot of people will say they don't snore, but when we record them, they actually do. Well, so what happens with, I'm sure a lot of women can relate to this. You have, because men, am I wrong to say men snore more than women? Yes, that's right. Okay. If you're with a man who snores and if you are a light sleeper, it is very disturbing. What is the solution? Is there a solution to that? There definitely are a lot of solutions and a lot of options uh, to that. That is probably one of the most common scenarios that comes into my office um, is, you know, a spouse that comes in because their other spouse is not happy that the snoring is disruptive. And so now not only is the sleep disorder causing, you know, the patient a problem, it's causing their bed partner a problem as well. So the first thing we like to do from a medical side is kind of characterize the snoring and say like, you know, how severe is it? Is it associated with these obstructive breathing events as well? Is it associated with decrease in oxygen? Does it look like it's to, you know, a threshold that meets criteria for obstructive sleep apnea? And if so, how severe is it? And then we might look at kind of some physical characteristics of the person, you know, are they overweight? Do they have a deviated septum? Do they still have their tonsils? Um, is, are their teeth normal? Do they have, you know, malocclusion, you know, and these anatomical things can also help tell us what treatment options are available. 
you know, generally we are looking at, you know, on the very mild end, you know, treatment with nasal sprays, you know, different mouth guards, um, there's nasal surgery, there's throat surgery, um, mm. there are breathe right strips, and then we go into the CPAP or the positive airway pressure devices. But there's this whole spectrum of things. There's also some other newer treatments out. Um, there is a tongue stimulating device. There's also um, this new device out called um, Excite OSA, which stimulates the tongue. So there's all these different options. It's really about figuring out like how much snoring is there? How do we quantify this? And what appropriate treatment would there be for that level of of the problem? Okay, that's good to know. That's really great information because I hear it from a lot of my girlfriends as well. You know, my husband, and then you sleep in a separate room, or you know, you're constantly hitting them in the side. Like, shut up. Well, Good one of me. the reasons they're they are such deep sleepers is because their brain has become desensitized to all that noise, right? So they they're not, you know, ordinarily that sound would wake someone up, but this person actually like there's they sleep through it because they're basically they need the sleep it's kind of amazing sometimes when people are allowed snores that you think they can sleep through that noise right it's so loud but it tells you their brain has kind of like turned off the normal ability to kind of wake up to sounds in the protective manner that we that we should have you seen in your studies can you move from being a light sleeper to a heavy sleeper you can if there's something wrong and you correct it you know there are some people that do have certain sleep disorders. And if you correct the sleep, I mean, it's even true in insomnia. If you correct that problem, the people will sleep deeper. You know, you consolidate the sleep and make it higher quality. I know there's so many reasons even researching this, like why somebody's an insomniac. Is there really solutions, especially for people who don't want to take pills? Like I can't, I fight pills. <laughs> I fight everything. Yeah, there's a really good treatment for chronic insomnia. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. But I think to step back from that and to kind of answer like, what is this exactly? You know, we use a model, it was the Spielman model of insomnia, and it's called the 3P model of insomnia. And basically what it says is that there are these three P's. So there's some predisposing factors, there's the precipitating factors, and then there's the perpetuating factors. So the predisposing factors are, you know, we think there's the spectrum of people in terms of how arousable there are. So there may be people who are like innately lighter sleepers or deeper sleepers, and you've got those people, we might even say stereotypically they're type A people, maybe people who are, tend to have more anxiety or overachievers or just kind of have that type of personality, you know, many things. The precipitating event is variable. Sometimes people don't always recognize what it is because sometimes people have had insomnia for 10 years before they come in and they just don't remember when it started. But it could be, I was diagnosed with cancer. I went through a divorce. I something happened to me that really stressed me out. But then after that goes away, then people try to cope with that sleep disturbance, you know, and they do certain things and they, some of the things are very characteristic and they're the same. And those are what we call the perpetuating factors. Now, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, we call it CBTI for short, targets the perpetuating factors. So what happens is people develop what we call conditioned arousal. Let's imagine that if you went to a restaurant and every time you went to the restaurant, you got sick after you ate there, then 
after a while, just the thought of the restaurant would make you feel sick, right? And so this is what happens with people who have insomnia. Every time they go to bed, they don't sleep. They feel anxious. It makes them upset. They don't feel good the next day. And this pattern develops where that is a conditioned arousal, meaning it develops unconsciously. Other things develop too. People do something called casting a wide net. So they try to sleep more. They, they extend their time in bed, um, which makes the sleep lower quality and makes it more fragmented. It also means you're probably sleeping outside of like your ideal circadian rhythm, like when your ideal body clock would want you to be in bed. You know, and so there's this whole like number of things that go along with it. But generally, there's just this this trying to sleep, just trying to grab it, trying to force it, trying to think about it all day long, you know, trying this, trying that. And there's just a lot of thought and pressure on yourself that you put on it. So it's all those things that CBTI works on. It's a multi-modality um, therapy. Um, there's also a lot of thoughts that people have that are um, very common. So where there's catastrophizing, you know, kind of overgeneralizing, worst case scenario types of things. So those are the things we work on. And it's like you said earlier, it's oftentimes like a series of visits over the course of several weeks or months that you would learn how to manage the insomnia better and get results rather than just taking a pill. So that's, and the, and the results are lasting because insomnia kind of waxes and wanes for people. People will tell you some days are good, some nights are bad, or, you know, sometimes there are just times it's not as bad. And the treatment is meant for people to like, you know, let's say you go through a cycle, you're doing better, but then a year later you have insomnia again. Well, hey, you've learned these tools that you reapply and, you know, you kind of get yourself back on track. So is this done with a therapist specifically? Yeah. So there's actually a field um, of medicine called behavioral sleep medicine that specializes in this field. Um, it's uh, mostly psychologists, like licensed psychologists that would get certified in this field. But there are some medical doctors like myself that have done training and, you know, have board certification in this field. So if you were to go to um, the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, they do have a list of uh, people who are board certified in this field um, listed by state on their website. Have you had patients that you're like, this person, this is their life. Do you have a like a high 100%, 99% success rate? It's pretty high. I mean, if you survey people who came through like my program, for example, I would say over 90% of the people I see feel better. Now they don't have zero insomnia anymore. But if, we, if I give them objective measures like an insomnia severity scale and things like that, they're better and they will say they're sleeping better. And I get people off of medication completely sleeping better than they were with it, um, you know, every day. And um, this has been shown in large scale clinical trials as well. I mean, I think when I was training at Stanford, I think their statistics there were about 85% of people who came out of their program uh, felt that the program was helpful. I think the people who don't see improvement, I mean, it is a behavioral program. So if you don't follow the directions or you just don't feel like you can, that's not going to help you. There are some folks too that have like, might have some serious other medical issues, whether it's, you know, let's say bipolar disorder that I don't want to take medications. Like it's, it might be hard to really get a lot of benefit in someone like that. So there may be like some other confounding issues, or sometimes we have folks that have 
sleep apnea too, and they don't want to get treatment for that. And so maybe they only get a partial benefit, but it's a very robust treatment that works very, very well. From a neurological standpoint, if I take a sleep aid, I am awake, my body goes numb, but my mind goes. And I don't know why that is. Or if I've taken in the past, I haven't done this in a long time, non-drowsy because I'll get seasick or motion sick. And then I know everything you take can create a resistance, right? I mean, I guess there's no one fits all. Do you think that across the board, sleeping aids can help everyone? The thing about sleep aids is they're just number one, they're a suggestion to the brain of sleep. So if you give a sleep aid, even if it's a good one, to someone who's wide awake, it's not going to make them fall asleep, you know, so you, it has to, you have to line up with person actually being sleepy and in a state where they're, you know, they would be, have a tendency to fall asleep. The other thing is, is that hypnotics or sleeping pills or sedatives, those states are not the same as being asleep. So people will say like, I slept eight hours, but I don't feel good. Like I don't feel rested. Like the drogginess? Yeah. So it's kind of like, it's just, it's psychological in a way. Cause it's like, well, at least I can feel better about the fact that I know I slept, but you know, I don't feel restored this, the same way I would if I just got a really good night of sleep. And I think a lot of people know that. And that's why, you know, I think a lot of people don't want to take sleeping pills or they stop. There are, you know, of course, there are other people who get hooked on them, but it's just not the same thing as sleep, you know? So I think they have a role and they can be helpful, but we want to try to, we want to try to fix the root of the problem. With the idea of eight hours, right? That goes around all the time. Do you really like statistically think every person needs that? Because I think I might've had eight hours. I can't even remember when I've had it, but the more I sleep, I remember I'm just like droggy or I'm like, I don't wake up out of it. Yeah. I think it's a bell curve, you know? And so in the middle of the bell curve is the eight hours, right? That's the average that most people need. But if we look at statistics from just, for example, historically, I mean, we sleep about an hour less than our ancestors did 100 years ago. And we think that's because of technology and the ubiquitousness of artificial light, and how that affects us biologically. Um, there are folks that I work with very, very intensively on CBTI, and we're able to kind of determine where someone's physiologic need is in going through that process. And a lot of times we land at seven hours. We also have different needs for sleep based on our activity level. So if we are an athlete, we need more sleep. If we're a younger person, we need more sleep. Uh, women actually need more sleep than men do in general. Um, so it varies a lot. But, you know, the average, if you're just statistically looking at a population, it's going to be eight hours. But, you know, based on what you said, my guess is your needs are lower based on what you said, because sleep, it's just like food and water. Our body needs it. If you're giving yourself the opportunity, but you're only getting so much, then chances are that you, you don't need the, the eight hours. And obviously you've come across people who are great nappers. That whole thing of, I'm sure you've heard this a lot. I'm so tired, so tired, but I can't just take a nap. Like some people can just fall into like a 10 minute nap. 
is that just a neurological thing that some people can do that and then others can't? Or is it anxiety? I think, you know, you're talking about like the people who say like, I'm tired, but wired. It's kind of, yeah, I mean, I think it can be, that can be an an anxiety type of situation where people feel tired, but wired. I think some people just are nappers. I think that in the spectrum of like, there's tall people and short people. There are also people who just tend to be a little bit arousable. And there are some people that tend to be a little bit sleepy all the time. And like, they're t- if you gave them the chance to nap, they just always would be able to, even if they got a good night of sleep the night before. And there are some people that they just don't, they just won't nap like ever, even if they could. Were you always just fascinated with sleep, which is what brought you into this field? I was, I mean, I didn't know that I was going to choose it until I was like midway through my neurology training, but I was always fascinated with it because my brother was a sleepwalker when I was growing up. And so it did really fascinate me. And it fascinated me that, you know, when he went to the doctor and he was evaluated that there just wasn't a lot of good information or understanding. And I just, it felt like there was a lot that was unknown. So I did feel like it was a fascinating area. I remember being like growing up, like always wanting to read about dreams and being interested in lucid dreaming. And I'm glad you said that because I actually was going to ask you this, thinking about this earlier today. REM sleep is the deep sleep, right? Like that's what you say from a medical standpoint, like this is what everyone needs. Well, there really are two deep stages of sleep. There's slow wave sleep or called stage three and end sleep, which is the deepest stage. REM sleep is also a deep stage, but it's not the deepest stage. That's actually one myth that people oftentimes mistake. Yeah. The deep sleep stage three, that's the sleep we really crave when we're like bone tired and exhausted. And this lucid dreaming, if you want to explain what that is specifically, what is that lucid state, lucid dreaming? Yeah. So there are some people that naturally are able to have lucid dreams. And then there are some people that are able through training to learn. But essentially what it is, is you're in a dream state, but you have this conscious awareness where you can kind of control the dream and it can be you know, something really pleasurable, like surfing or flying, where you have this conscious awareness in the dream itself. But is that the same as like that space where you know exactly what happened? You know how some dreams you wake up and you're kind of like something happened or I feel icky. And then there's that space of like, you remember each moment of that dream, but you didn't feel like you really slept. It was like you were awake. Is that lucid dreaming when you're like awake, but dreaming? Yeah. I mean, I think in lucid dreaming, you're awake and you're aware and you would remember it. But I think the point of it is that you're able to sort of control it with your mind as well. So that the dream isn't just happening. Like you're kind of making the dream happen Hmm. as well. And it kind of, it becomes this like experience for people like, you know, that people enjoy, I think. I mean, I think that's the reason why people learn to do it. And is that beneficial for sleep? I mean, are you getting, can you say that, yeah, I slept. Okay, I'm just going to give you an example. When I say I I really am challenged at points to not sleep, this has been like um, what's happening in the last few weeks. I'll start to go down and I'll have a dream and I'll watching this dream and then I come out of it and go, oh, wait, 
did I fall asleep? Because I just, I, I saw a whole movie just happen, but I'm exhausted still. Am I sleeping? Am I getting any benefit in that? If you know you were asleep, which I would guess you were if you felt like you saw this movie or you're dreaming, you're, you are still getting restoration from that. You are still getting okay. sleep. But, you know, there are people who, when they do remember their dreams, or like you said, they have that icky feeling, like they may not feel like their sleep was refreshing. There is a psychological component to how we interpret our sleep as well. You know, so a lot of times with especially with chronic insomnia, people will overestimate like how bad their night was compared to like an objective measure, you know? So like during CBTI, for example, one of the things we have people do is we have them keep sleep diaries because like our memory of things isn't always, you know, we tend to overgeneralize or remember the worst case scenario or the best case scenario. And so adding that objective information can kind of help people feel better um, because it, there is a psychological component to sleep, whether it's having a bad dream or not having a good night of sleep or just feeling like I was partially aware when I was sleeping. Well, that's good to know because I am aware that I do that lucid thing quite often. And I'm thinking there's just no way I would be able to function partly if I didn't have any sleep, right? Like I would crash part-time. I think I'm going to die from, you know, how frustrated people get. Yeah. I mean, I think I just want people to know that sleep medicine is a field and that it isn't normal to walk around feeling horrible, sleepy, or having difficulty sleeping at night. And there's help for it that's really good and that works. And there are great solutions. Um, so I would say if you're struggling, you know, ask for help, you know, ask your primary, most primary care doctors do not know how to treat sleep disorders. You know, they can give you some sleep hygiene advice, which you've probably already tried and they can prescribe a sleeping pill. But I mean, most of the time you really need to see like a board certified sleep medicine physician or a behavioral sleep medicine provider to get these types of resources. And sometimes even the folks in the community like will focus just on sleep apnea. So if you're someone with insomnia or restless legs, you may need to find, you know, someone who has more of a wider scope of practice. But that would be my main message just to tell people is there is help. You know, the like I mentioned earlier, the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine is a really good resource to find someone who's credentialed in that area of medicine. At your website or what you do, Sound Sleep Guru, you help people remotely correct? Yeah, I have a physical office in the Seattle, Washington area. Um, but I do um, provide telehealth visits to people in Alaska, California, and Washington. I have a medical license in those states, which is why it's limited to those areas. Awesome. Well, you know, I think that is covered a lot of um, the basis of uh, what I was thinking was sleep. And I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and coming on and taking the time. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. Please let me know what you think. Leave a comment, share, and we'll be back next week with a new episode.